Heavenly Father, we say together with all the saints this morning, hallelujah, all we have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is our life. We ask that you would be magnified this morning and that you would be glorified in the proclamation of the gospel through this most amazing Old Testament book. We desire this morning, Lord, to see that life without Christ, life without you, is truly meaningless. Vanity, vanity, all vanity. And yet we see also that in Christ there is joy and there is purpose that can be known and had both now and for eternity. And so we ask, Father, that you would be gracious with us this morning, that you would help us to hear you speak to us through your word and that we would be changed by it. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in a mighty way this morning, reconciling those who are unsaved to yourself, encouraging the saints that we might press on toward the goal to win the prize for which you have called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen. Good morning. You may be seated. If you have a Bible, um, please open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. We have uh, an incredible opportunity this morning to have a look at um, an Old Testament book that is ha- and has been debated for centuries in terms of authorship and purpose within the canon. Um, it's in the Old Testament. If you just open up your Bible and if you can't find it, go to the book of Psalms. You'll be somewhere in the middle if you open up in the, in the middle of the book and then you'll hit Proverbs and then you'll hit Ecclesiastes. Um, as, a, as a young man born in the 1960s, I grew up having the opportunity to experience two different eras. I saw the modern era give way to the postmodern era. The modern era, for those of you who do not know, dates back to 1789 and ended approximately in 1989. These are just general movements that we see in history. And the modern era was marked by a period of inevitable progress of human flourishing, the sense that mankind, unshackled by religion, set free from God, could abound in his own work. And during the modern era, we questioned or we rejected tradition and convention that we had held for centuries, traditions that shaped society and governments, family structure, religion, even the character and nature of God was brought into question and rejected by many in the Western world. Individualism and freedom, with science and technology as their guides, promised that mankind would flourish. Not only flourish, but many of that school of thought believed that we would find perfection, that mankind would reach that utopian state. But as the 20th century unfolded, all those who had this high hope for mankind set free from God began to see their hopes quenched. Two world wars claimed 125 million lives. Economic depressions, the spread of communism, brutal totalitarian regimes, and the immorality of secular humanism proved too much for the utopian dreamers. The hope of finding satisfaction and joy apart from God, the hope of finding true purpose in this life or the next was lost. And it gave way to what we call the postmodern era, the area in which we live in now. Now, the postmodern era, unlike the modern era, was defined by skepticism and distrust 
rejecting any grand historical narrative that there was any hope for mankind to achieve a happily ever after ending. Postmodernism rejects both the conventional and the modern worldviews regarding human nature, social progress, reality, and absolute truth. The postmodern thinker does not believe that history is heading in any particular direction and that any notion of finding lasting happiness or eternal peace or an afterlife, they argue, is nothing more than a fairy tale, lies we tell to our children that they might sleep better at night. Kohelet, he is the primary author of Ecclesiastes, was in many ways a postmodern thinker well before his time. He drew the same conclusions that many, most, many postmodern philosophers and many Westerners conclude today. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, was his final conclusion. The word vanity in the Hebrew is habel, and it literally means a vapor or a breath. Figuratively, as it's used here in Ecclesiastes, it means emptiness or fleetingness. I like the word meaningless. That is the word the translators in the NIVs use, NIV uses. From Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to chapter 12, verse 7, Kohelet, the primary author of the book, he renders this supreme postmodern conclusion that when he looks upon all of human life, all endeavors, all thought, all relationship, all history, and all nature, he says it is meaningless, completely and utterly void of any purpose or direction or value. The problem with that conclusion by Kohelet and many modern thinkers today and many Americans today is it's not sustainable. It is not livable. You cannot embrace a worldview that says everything is meaningless, everything is empty, everything is vain, and then go through life. Everyone, without exception, is living for, striving for, and desires deep down to be happy, to be satisfied, to know true, lasting joy. Everyone, without exception. And if they tell you otherwise, they're lying. I like how John Piper said, he said, the longing to be happy is a universal human experience, and it is good, not sinful. We should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it. Now listen closely. With whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. That's a bold statement. Coalette says there's no such thing. The Bible, John Piper, and every Christian who knows Christ, knows there is such a thing, and it is a person, and it is God, that we can have joy, and we can have, have happiness, and we can have purpose now and for eternity in Jesus Christ. The book of Ecclesiastes, for us, is a necessary recalibration. We live in the midst of a time that is highly cynical about everything. And so Ecclesiastes, by God's grace, over the next several weeks, will bring us back to a biblical worldview to see God clearly in light of His Word. Ecclesiastes affirms, I believe, the hopelessness of trying to find ultimate purpose or eternal joy or happiness apart from the living God. And Ecclesiastes redirects our focus back on the one who is purposeful. The one who gives joy and gives meaning and eternal happiness, and that is God himself.
So I want to begin this morning a study, and it is the beginning of it, so this is an introduction to the book, but we're going to spend the next 9, 10, 11 weeks trying to understand why it is God placed this book in His Bible, because it is a most peculiar book. And if you've read it several times, you've found yourself saying, yeah, some of it seems right and some of it seems wrong, and that's an accurate evaluation. Some of it is quite right and others, other pieces of it are quite wrong. So let's begin this morning by doing this. Let's look at, one, the two voices of Ecclesiastes. Is there one author? Are there two? Number two, the prevailing theme of Ecclesiastes. Number three, the final word. Two voices, prevailing theme, and the final word of this book so that we can get started this Sunday and for the next several Sundays hear God speak to us through the book of Ecclesiastes. Are you with me? Very good. So first, the two voices of Ecclesiastes. If you've ever read through the book in a cursory fashion, you probably put it down and thought, that's discouraging. (laughs) That is not something I want to read in the Bible. And yet it is in the Bible, so we can't not read it. We can't not study it. We must understand it in the context in which it was written. The primary theme, all life is purposeless. All life is vain. There is no meaning of any kind to life. That's not a word of encouragement. That certainly is not something you want to get up on a Monday morning and say, yeah, my life is purposeless, and then try to go to work or raise your children or love your spouse. But as we will see by God's grace over the next several weeks, it is not the exclusive message of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is not the final word of the book either. And this is why the structure of this book is so vitally important. I usually don't do this introducing a book, but it's imperative that we understand the structure of this book in order to understand the meaning of it. Without it, I believe that you will be confused and possibly a bit heretical if you start to quote Ecclesiastes out of the context in which it was given. So we must be very careful here. Most people argue now that it was not written by one person, that there are two authors here. You have a narrator, and we see that, verses Chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and at the very end, chapter 12, verses 8 through 14, we have a narrator who writes a prologue and an epilogue, an introduction and a conclusion. And then we have the main author, Coalette. The translators translate him the preacher or the teacher. Coalette literally means a collection of sentences. And so what we see is a narrator who introduces the book and ends the book, and we see an author, a wisdom writer, a sage, Coalette writing the body of the book. Now, if you are a uh, been raised in the church, then you probably believe that Solomon, King Solomon, wrote the book, and he may have. But there's great evidence, both internally and externally, that he probably was not the primary author. It's not really that important. Um, just really quickly, so you can see this, we believe that because in verse one it says the son of David, king in Jerusalem, and you think, well, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that must be Solomon. But, of course, we know the term son of David could pertain to anybody in his line. Some of the difficulty we have with Solomon as the author, in verse 12, it talks about the author once serving, past tense, as king of Jerusalem. And yet we know in 1 Kings that Solomon died in office. In verse 16, um, it says that Coalette acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before him. Of course, there was only one we know. That was King David that preceded Solomon. Um, There are also some linguistical issues and some grammar issues. Most put the writing of Ecclesiastes in a post-exilic period. It doesn't quite match the the Hebrew that was used during the time of Solomon. 
But whatever you believe, whoever this author is, what's important is not if it's Solomon or not. What's important is that you see that there is a narrator and that there is an author. Because that distinction enables us to differentiate between a prevailing message and a final message. In other words, it's the narrator who introduces the book, and it's the narrator who closes the book that brings the entire book into orthodoxy and the Word of God. And so that is important that you see. Um, the narrator draws a conclusion that is substantially different from Kohelet. Substantially different, and we'll see that over the, the next several weeks. The author introduces and he concludes in order to reveal God's word to God's people, in order to bring all that Kohelet said under the word of God, that we might understand it rightly. And so I, I believe that God uses the narrator in order to bring criticism and correction to much of what Kohelet had to say. It's very similar to God speaking out of the whirlwind in Job chapter 38. After you heard all the counsel from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to Job, and then finally God speaks and brings correction to much of what they said. It's very similar to what he's doing here. The narrator is, is being used by God to speak truth, to bring correction to what Kohelet had to say. And the main message that we're going to see is it reveals the futility of the postmodern worldview and how it, we fail if we look upon life and we look upon marriage or work or church as though it's meaningless or futile or vain. Instead, the narrator redirects our entire worldview back to God, the purpose of why you're here, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, to serve Him and to minister to Him. And so it's absolutely necessary, I believe, that we see that beginning this morning. And so we're going to do, this morning, we're going to look at, we're going to look at the narrator's introduction. He introduces everything Colette had to say. It's cliff notes of the entire book, verses 1 through 11. The narrator speaks. And then we're going to jump to the very end, and we're going to look at the last two verses, because he then closes the thought. And by God's grace, we'll have a few applications. So if you're still with me, let's, let's make our way into verse 1. Point number two, the prevailing theme of the book. What is it? You say, well, I know what it is. Vanity of vanity. It's all vanity. It's all meaningless. You are right. That is the prevailing theme. Look at verse one. The words of the preacher. The word preacher there, it literally is Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then the narrator offers a summary of all his teachings beginning in verse two through verse 11. Verse two, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's being written in the third person, says the preacher. The narrator is now speaking. This is Coalette's final conclusion. He begins with it and he ends with it. The NIV, I think, I like better. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. 35 times. Coalette says that in the book. 35 times he wants us to understand the meaninglessness of life on earth apart from God. His emphasis cannot be overstated. Verse 2 is made up of superlatives, exaggerated statements. They're big. In fact, it's said first in the singular and then in the plural. Vanity of vanities. It's like saying king of kings or lord of lords. This is the highest statement he can make about it. Not only that, but then he offers a summary statement. He says it repetitiously. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then that concluding statement, everything is meaningless. In other words, he says, I've looked at everything. I've studied it all. 
I've studied life. I've studied death. I've studied marriage. I've studied riches. I've studied work. I've studied play and music. I've looked at everything, and I am rightly concluding that nothing really matters. It's all purposeless, all of it. Nothing a man can know, nothing a man can see, nothing a man can do can bring true meaning or lasting satisfaction to the human heart. And this is his definitive declaration, and it permeates the entire book. And therefore, he gets to verse 3, and he asks this recurring rhetorical question. Look at verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The New English translation puts it like this. What benefit do people gain from all the effort with which they expend on earth? In other words, he's saying, if everything is meaningless, if everything is purposeless, why get up in the morning? Why go to work? Why get married? Why raise children? Why come to church on a Sunday morning if everything is meaningless? What are you doing here? This is a right question to ask if indeed everything is vain. Colette says, why strive for meaning? Why press for satisfaction? Why seek a family? Why seek good work? He argues it's foolish, toilsome labor because in the end, he says, it profits you nothing. There is no gain. Life under the sun, that's life on earth, he says, is filled with nothing. It is a royal waste of everyone's time to pursue anything because ultimately everything is meaningless and death meets us all. And then what he does, he calls upon nature and history. So he's made his point, he's asked the rhetorical question, then what does that mean for you? It means your whole life is worthless. And then he begins to establish his argument. He uses nature and history. Look at verse 4. He uses nature first. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. So Colette says, there's one thing that changes and that's time, but that's it. Nothing else really changes. You have lots of movement and lots of commotion, but there's no substantive change of any kind. He says, I'll show you the sun and the wind and the seas and I'll prove my point. Look at the sun, for example. Colette says, it works hard to rise It works hard to set, and then it hurries along on the backside of the earth to come up again, only to do it again and again and again. This repetitious work, toiling work to hurry again and again for the next day, continuous, without substantive change. The wind, Coelette argues, is no different. Look at verse 6. He says, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, Around and round goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. What do you have with the wind? You have lots of sound. You have lots of movement. You look outside, the trees are moving, and the leaves are blowing. And you say, something's happening. Something big is happening. Colette says, nothing big is happening. You have the easterlies, you have the westerlies, you have the trade winds, and they all circle the globe, and they all end up in the exact same place they started. Futile work. And then he said, I'll give you one more, rivers and seas. Look at verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. He says, you have water with great movement and great purpose. It comes down from the sky, and it flows down the mountains, and through the valleys, and into the sea. But the sea never fills up, and the rivers keep flowing over and over, year after year. 
You have evaporation, condensation, and precipitation, but no real change. There's appearance of change. Things look like they're changing. The sun is rising. The wind is blowing. The rain is falling. The rivers are flowing. Year after year, generation after generation, century after century, Colette says, nothing's changed. Many of you have probably felt or do feel like this about your life. You go to work, some of you six, seven days a week. You work 40, 50, 60 hours a week. At the end of the week or the end of the month, you get a paycheck. You put a little bit into savings. You give a little bit to the church. You pay your bills. You buy your gas. You buy your food. Not a lot left over. And then you do it again the next week and the next week, year after year, until you retire. And you look upon your life, whether you're outside of the home or you're inside of the home, you get up inside of the home and you're raising your children and you're changing diapers and you're making breakfast and you're cleaning up the dishes and you're saying to yourself, every single day, is it not like the sun? Is it not like the wind? Is it not like the sea never filling up? This constant routine of repetition that seems to never end. There's no fruit. It never culminates in anything. It never ends in anything. When I first started teaching political science in my early 20s, I was wickedly naive. I would bring to my students with great excitement these movements that were taking place throughout the world that I thought were going to have a lasting impact upon this nation and upon the world as a whole. Major movements. The end of the Cold War in 1989. The fall of the Berlin Wall. I remember teaching that in class, so excited to share that with my students. The rise of capitalism in China, the end of apartheid in South Africa, the incredible deal made between Israel and Palestine at the Oslo Accords, the Republican Revolution in 1994 when the House and Senate was won for the first time in 40 years, and I would come to my students and say, these are significant changes. These are going to make real changes here in this country and throughout the world. 30 years later now, I look back and I think, what a fool. What has changed. What has changed? And if any of those students were listening, they're probably thinking, what was he so excited about? What was he so excited about? There was much movement. It was like the wind. There was lots of commotion. There were lots of people talking, documents being signed, hands being shaken, and things. something's happening here. But time passes, and nothing really changes. So Coalette's final conclusion, he says, you look at the great movements in nature, sun, wind, Seas, and it's meaningless, pointless, much work, much energy, no real change. And then he concludes, it's no different for human beings. He says, if, if great elements in nature move and there's no real change, then, then what about us? I mean, our movements compared to the sun or the wind or the seas, it's relatively pathetic as human beings. Feeble efforts of mankind. Look at verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. He's saying, you're born, you grow up, you study, you work, you play, you worship God, you get married, you have a family, you make money, you consume things, you build things, you destroy things. And he said, it's all filled with weariness. It's all wearisome because even in all that work you do, nothing really changes. Nothing truly satisfies the human heart. We are like the sea, are we not? We fill and we fill and we never fill up. 
always hungry, always craving, always desiring that one next thing that will truly make us happy. So wearisome is the sameness of our existence. Colette says it exceeds the ability of mankind to describe it. He's saying that's how wearisome as it is. It's so bad that I can't in words describe how bad it is. Our eyes, they see much. They may be like the sun and they circle the globe and you take in every sight that you could possibly see, but they're never satisfied. Your ears are filled, are they not, daily with much noise. Noise like the wind, and you hear it, but you're never truly satisfied. There's never that ultimate satisfaction. When you hear that one thing, you say, yes, now I have purpose. And Colette says it's not only true of nature and mankind, but it's true for all human history. Look at verse 9. He said it's true of nature, it's true of man, and it's true of all history. Verse 9, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. You've, most of you have heard that phrase before. Nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. To Kohelet, history is not this grand plan of God redeeming mankind to make a people for himself and glorify his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see history moving in a progressive fashion to this climactic end when Christ comes again in glory. He sees history as repeating itself over and over a series of endless cycles. He rejects God's redemptive plan, and he concludes there's nothing new under the sun. Now, many of you today, especially today, will say, well, we know that's not true. I mean, we live in a time and a place where technology and information has changed everything. At least this is what we say now. You say, there are so many new things. What about Apple Watches? What about self-driving cars? You say, I, I use Snapchat. I didn't 10 years ago. I use Instagram. I didn't five years ago. You say, you know what? You know what Amazon's doing now? They actually will bring groceries to your doorstep. And some of you older say, no, wait a minute. That's what grocers used to do all the time before the supermarkets came. It seems so novel and new to us, but we've only forgotten that that's the way it used to be. Coalette says, what appears to be new isn't new at all. You have discoveries, we do. We have innovation, but how much does it really change life? Coalette says things will come and things will go, but life stays relatively the same. And think about our current cultural moment. Right now, we as a people have access to more information at lightning speeds than any previous generation before us, and yet, in many ways, we are more ignorant. We have the unprecedented ability to communicate via smartphones and social media in ways no other previous generation was able to, and yet, socially and communicatively, we are inferior to previous generations. We have access to so many time-saving inventions, washing machines, refrigerators, microwaves, the electric toothbrush, and yet we find ourselves having less time and being more, less productive. Less time and less productive with all these great innovations that were supposed to change our lives. The advances in medicine continue to soar, and yet we take more medications, we have more surgeries, and we fight more diseases than past generations, and we're less healthy. So what has changed? Coelette says, what appears to be new, bringing lasting change, isn't new at all, and nothing really changes. 
Besides, he says, look at verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words, he's saying, we don't remember what they did back in previous generations, and the future generations aren't going to remember what we've done today. So many things that seem novel today that we say, that's a great invention, that's a great idea. Many of them are old. Many things that you think were brand new. The, the selfie stick that some of you carry around to take those glorious pictures of your faces. You know when that was first invented? 1925. I think that was before the smartphone. The big craze now to move from cigarettes to e-cigarettes, back created first time, 1963. The first screen uh, phone, not Apple, IBM, 1992. The first flying drone, everybody's getting drones for Christmas, all the kids. First flying drone, Great Britain, 1916. The toothpaste you use was used by the ancient Egyptians. The robots that we see were started by the ancient Greeks. And for those of you who are contact, contacts, that's a 3,000-year-old invention. What's new? Colette says, there's nothing new. And some of you say, well, there are things today that will not go away. Facebook will not go away. Netflix will not go away. One day, one day, they're going to say, face what are you talking about? Let me ask you this. How many of you still are, are pining away for an iPod? Say, what's an iPod? Five years ago, you couldn't find a kid without an iPod. Now you can't find a kid with an iPod. This is where we're left. This is where Colette leaves us at this introduction. He argues that nature, history, and the human experience testify completely that nothing really matters. No meaning, no purpose, no lasting joy. It's all fleeting. It's all a vapor. It's all a breath. This is the general theme of Colette's writings, that everything, without exception, is utterly and hopelessly meaningless. Now, if I ended the sermon here, you ought to kick me out of this building. If I said, and that is what the Word of God says, and you say, blessed be the Word of God, because you're liturgical people, you'd say, out of here. We need hope, we need meaning, we need purpose, because that's what the Bible says. So do this with me. Let's turn to the end of the book. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And we'll look at a few verses here, and then I'll close. Um, and if, if you're thinking we're going too fast on this, we're going to work our way through. My goal today was to make sure I didn't say so much that I ruined the rest of the study. In each of these areas, in work, in play, in faith, we're going to look at how that applies to our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So right now, I just want you to get a taste of this extraordinary book. So point number three, the final word of Ecclesiastes. It's not Colette. He doesn't leave us with the final word. The final word is the narrator. The narrator who started the book in verses 1 to 11, he comes back on the scene in chapter 12, verse 8, and he finishes the dialogue. In fact, he writes, he, he begins his epilogue, his conclusion of life on earth. Look at verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. We're in the third person again. So he's now talking about what Coalette had written. Twelve chapters. Vanity of vanity, meaningless meaningless. And now he's going to argue to the contrary. He does something great here. He pays him respects. We'll look at this in several weeks. He talks about him being a wise man, that he worked hard at his task. He sought to understand reality. But then he becomes increasingly critical to 
verse 13 where he refutes almost the entire book in verses 13 and 14. And what he wants us to do, what he wants his son to do, and what he wants the church to do, because this is what God desires of us, is not to fall into this postmodern skepticism, cynicism worldview. He wants us to see, he draws us back into the word of God that we might hear God speak total truth to us, beginning, middle, and end. And so he turns away from Colette and he goes back to orthodox theology, the word of God. Look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. And he says, okay, we've heard you, wise man. We've heard all your teachings. Here is the end of the matter. This is where we will rest, and this is where we will stay. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So for 12 chapters, what do we hear? Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. For 12 chapters, this is literally poured into your heart and mind if you're reading through it and you're thinking, this is Solomon. This is the wisest man in the world. This must be true. The narrator, with masterful precision, brings the reader back to the orthodoxy of God's word, to wisdom, to the law, and to the prophets. All three here in two verses. Wisdom, the law, and the prophets. And he says, this is the end of the matter. God's word still stands. And the wise man, remember, we're dealing with wisdom literature. Coelette is a wisdom writer. The narrator says, the wise man will know God through his word. The wise man will submit to God through his word. Let me show you really quickly and I'll close. The first, the narrator directs his son and us to fear God. For why? Why? That is the heart of wisdom, is it not? The heart of wisdom is fearing God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One, that is insight. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have no fear of God. You have no knowledge of God. You are, you are ultimately foolish. And this is not a fear of terror. This is a fear of reverential awe and wonder. It is seeing God for who He is, the Almighty, all-knowing, ever-present, thrice-holy, creator of the universe. This, was what it, this is what it means to fear God. It means having a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. To fear God is to know Him and be known by Him. It is to worship Him and enjoy Him. It is to come under Him as your protector and your provider. To know God is to know God in the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. So when he says fear God here, he's talking about that right relationship of total dependence and complete subordination to the one who created you. This wisdom, in other words, is seeing God clearly and seeing yourself clearly in light of who this God really is. It is recognizing Him as the creator and you created in his image to love him and honor him and worship him. And yet we see ourselves as we truly are. We are sinners. Many of you sinners saved by grace. We see ourselves, we see the image has been ruined and the rebellion has taken place. And so we fight against God and we sin against God and we see this great movement of God coming in and redeeming a people for himself. This is what it means to have a right fear of God created in his image, torn apart by sin, but brought back into a right relationship through faith in Jesus Christ. 
This is the end of the matter. Fear God. Know God. Have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by faith. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's an amazing statement. The whole duty. You say, what am I supposed to do in life? Fear God and obey His commandments. It's the whole duty. You say, that's it? That's it. Because if you fear God rightly, you have a right relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. It means that you have been justified. You now stand before this thrice holy God, pure in Jesus. So you have a right relationship. And it also means that you're going to be sanctified. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will day by day make you as He is. And you will begin to obey the commandments and love the commandments coming under the law of God by the power of the Holy Spirit being sanctified. Justification and sanctification. That's the whole duty of man. Knowing Jesus Christ and growing in holiness. That's the whole duty of man. Not purposelessness. Not a meaningless life without any determined end. Do you see how contrary this is? The narrator says, Kohelet is not right. Life is not purposelessness. Life is not without meaning. He's saying it has ultimate meaning. You were created by God to know God, to enjoy God, to be loved by God in Christ. You were created for that reason. You were created to live a life in submission to God, knowing His laws and knowing His teachings and wanting to follow them, you were created by God not to live a life of rebellion, but to be that loving son or that loving daughter who wants to please their father out of their love for their father because of the love they've experienced from their father. When I ask my son to do the dishes, he could say to me, he could take Colette's view. This would be a good argument. I'm not saying you should use it, young people. But he would say, you know, Dad, every night I wash the dishes. And the next day they're going to get dirty again. And every time you're going to tell me wash them again. Why should I wash them? Day after day I wash them. Day after day they get dirty. It's meaningless. It's fruitless. And this is not a hypothetical dialogue. What if they took the narrator's perspective? What if they said, you know what, I love you, Dad. And because of your love for me, I I want to follow your instructions. You're asking me to wash these dishes. I may not think it's wise. I may think that it's futile. But I'm going to wash them because I love you. I'm going to wash them because you love me. And this is what we do. This is how we relate to one another. So if he follows, if my son follows the narrator's counsel and wisdom, how much better is that relationship between the son and the father or the daughter and the father? So too with man when we relate to God through Jesus Christ, when we have that right relationship and we submit to him, coming under the teachings, that relationship is right and it's glorious. And so the narrator points us to wisdom, fear the Lord. He points us to the law, keep his commandments. And lastly, listen closely, if you're not with me, listen to this last point. He points us to prophecy. Wisdom, the law, and prophecy. Verse 14. God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. My beloved, far from life being purposeless or our end being irrelevant, the narrator brings a a sobering reality to this entire dialogue. And he says, life will be adjudicated by God. Not just life, every word, every secret thought, that should cause a shudder. 
Every word, every secret thought, every good deed, every evil deed will be brought before a thrice holy God on the day of judgment and it will be adjudicated. And if you are not in Jesus Christ, then that judgment will be one of condemnation and death because there is no freedom apart from Christ. There is no forgiveness apart from Christ. Verse 14 runs contrary to the postmodern worldview that nothing really matters. Verse 14 runs contrary to the teaching that there is no such thing as an absolute truth or consequences for life here on earth. Instead, it reveals that life has ultimate meaning and not just life, but it elevates every single thing you do, every single thing. Listen, every word you've ever uttered or will utter, every single thought you've ever had or will have, every action, every good deed, every evil deed is of eternal significance. I like how R.C. Sproul says it. it counts for time and it counts for eternity. In other words, if you're going to wash the dishes, you can do it to the glory of God because it has eternal purpose. You can go to work year after year. You can change your child's diaper day after day. You can mow the lawns and you can rake the leaves and you can go out. Uh, Two days ago, I went out in my backyard and I have a blower because I live up in the mountains and I was blowing the backyard and there there was leaves everywhere and and pollen and it was clean. I woke up the next morning, it was filthy again. I went, ugh, because the wind had picked up the night before. Uh, Should I blow it again? And I sat there in the midst of this going, vanity of vanity, it's all vanity. How meaningless. I'm going to blow it again, and the next day it's going to be there again. But in Christ, I can blow those leaves. And there's purpose. There's glory. There's meaning to it all. Everything we do in God's economy counts. Everything Everything that you think, well, this is so small and inconsequential is not small in the kingdom of God and it has eternal consequence attached to it. Everything you do. That's why Paul can say, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. And therefore, we are to be, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, we are to be careful how we live, not as unwise, kohelet, but as wise, the narrator, making the most, he says, of what? Every opportunity. And then he closes in Ephesians 5, verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in Christ. Because of the great work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, he redeems our lives in total. If you know him, if you know him as Lord and Savior, that means you've repented of your sins and you've turned to God and you've placed your whole life and all your trust in Christ. He's redeemed your whole life, not just your past sins. He's redeemed that, praise God. He's redeemed your whole life. Every moment of every day, every Monday when you get up to go to work, every Tuesday night when you're exhausted from changing the diapers, every moment of every day, He redeems for the glory of God. Now that changes everything. That means that life is not meaningless. It's not all vanity. It is purposeful, infinitely so. Things that you thought, well, what does it matter? Matter. It means that Through Christ, we can come into a right relationship. And even though it seems, my beloved, I know, and we're going to see this as we stay there, it seems like you're just blowing leaves every single day. I know that. There seems to be a grind to it and an exhaustion to it. And you say, I am weary. I'm so weary. I agree with Colette. I can't describe it. That's how weary I am. 
Those are my eyes. I have weary eyes. I have weary ears. In Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live a life of meaning and purpose. You can have that joy and happiness that Piper talked about in Jesus Christ. And so we will look at this and say, Colette, you cannot be right. If Christ is risen, if He is my Lord, then everything I do matters. And you won't look at history and say, the sun and the wind and the seas, they move, but to no purpose. You will see the grand redemptive plan of God the Father sending Christ into the world to redeem a people for Himself, a holy people for Himself. You will see that, and you will say, I want to participate in that. I don't want to stand on the outside and look in. I want to be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. I want to be redeemed by Christ. And you will repent of your sins, and you'll put your faith in Christ, and you'll follow Him. You'll follow Him. You'll want to know His teachings. You'll want to know the commandments. Not because they will save you, but because you're already saved. And you'll want to live a life that brings Him honor and glory, because you are looking forward to that day not for history to go on and on in an endless, repetitious cycle, but that day when Christ will come again in glory and He will bring kingdom, his, the kingdom of heaven down to earth. You're waiting for that day. You're working for that day. And you're rejoicing in that day. Ecclesiastes, by God's grace, will show us. It's an extremely powerful book in helping us see and speak to the pain and frustration and suffering in this world. It will help us in that. But because of God's word, as spoken through the narrator and spoken through the Bible and revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, it shows us that there is great purpose for those created in his image. Great purpose for you, for this church. A life that has meaning and joy now and an ending with God that is infinitely more grand offered freely through Jesus Christ. Hopelessness and meaninglessness does not have to be your life now. It does not have to be your end. If you say, I am hopeless, my life seems meaningless, then today is the day of salvation. Know God. Pursue Christ. Seek forgiveness of your sins and put your faith and trust in Him. And you'll know joy. And you'll know happiness. And you'll know purpose like you've never known it before. And your end will be glorious. You say, well, what is that end? I'll close with this. The Apostle John describes the purposeful conclusion of God's history. Listen to what John says. He says, I heard, this is from Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is your intended end. God being your God, you being a son or daughter, knowing Him, enjoying Him, and being purpose-filled for eternity. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for God's people throughout the world. So let's pray now. Let's ask God to give us a good understanding of what these wisdom writers were writing, that we might have a better understanding of who He is and who we are in Christ that we might live these purpose-filled, joyful lives in Him. Amen? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, many of us would admit that we find ourselves thinking and living more like Kohelet than we do the narrator. Many of my days, I know, seem hopeless. Many of my endeavors seem, Father, like they are in vain. And yet we know because of the gospel of grace and the power of Jesus Christ, that is not possible for those who have been redeemed. We know that our lives have eternal significance and everything we do now matters. And so I pray you would be gracious with us that as we leave this place today, as we arise tomorrow morning on a Monday morning to do our job, to do our work, we would remind ourselves that in Christ it matters. That there is purpose in the small things. The things that we see and think those are inconsequential are eternally significant to you. And so by your grace and mercy, as followers of Christ, Lord, let us do everything to your honor and glory. Let every word we utter, every thought we think, every action we engage in be something you would be eternally pleased with. And we ask that you would do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might live lives that bring you great honor and great glory, not lives that the world looks upon us and says, there is a purposeless existence. Let them see the purpose in our lives. Let them see the glory of Christ in our hearts. And by your grace and mercy, save many through us. In Jesus' name, amen.